Welcome to Let's Talk Governance, a podcast to support regional West Australian non-for-profit groups to lead and steer their activities with high impact, confidence and compliance. The podcast is brought to you by the Grower Group Alliance and made possible with the generous support of podcast sponsor, the CBH Group. Your host is Callista Bolton of the Grower Group Alliance and our expert guest is renowned governance instructor, Peter Fitzpatrick. The Grower Group Alliance is a WA statewide network of around 60 farmer-led grower groups that are all run with volunteer committees. Established by grower groups for grower groups almost 20 years ago, today member groups extend from Kununurra in the northwest all the way down to Esperance in the southeast. Across the network, the groups have a diverse collective membership of around 4,000 farm enterprises, operating in all sectors of the agriculture industry at all different levels of scale and purpose. Hi everyone and welcome to our Let's Talk Governance podcast. My name is Callista Bolton. I work with the Grower Group Alliance in the role of Stakeholder and Communications Manager. Let me introduce our guest governance expert, Peter Fitzpatrick, who will be delivering all the technical content for this six-episode series. Peter is a well-known West Australian governance instructor. Peter has quite the resume, but for the context of this podcast, let's focus on his governance work. Peter is a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and has an advanced diploma in company directorship. He is currently a director of six boards and chairperson of four, which are a mix of for-profit and not-for-profit organisations. Peter is currently a teaching instructor for the Australian Institute of Company Directors course and consults privately, offering governance, consulting and training workshops. Welcome, Peter, to episode four. What area of governance are we talking about today? Well, we're going to continue on from the previous session on achieving best practice board performance. And the first question that I think we probably should talk about is what is the role of a chair uh, in an organisation, in a not-for-profit organisation? And I actually have a dozen ideas about chairs that I think I'd like to share with people. Uh, And the first of those is the chair is the leader in governance. So the chair has to be experienced enough to understand all the principles of governance, the the responsibilities, rights uh, of directors, staff and so on. And I think that's a a critical role. Secondly, there is a key relationship with the executive officer or chief executive officer. Uh, If ever an organisation is going to fail, a, a breakdown in that relationship will be the starting point for it. So it's really critical that that relationship exists and uh, that it's a functional one. Uh, The other thing as a chair, and I find I have to do a lot of over time, is you become a bit of a mentor or a coach for less experienced directors and you also become a bit of a mentor and sometimes a coach for CEOs who uh, or executive officers who may not have the experience in the role that that you might have uh, as a chair. Uh, And I think it's important that uh, there is this sharing of knowledge at that level. The other really important role for a chair is to make sure everyone contributes uh, at a board meeting. You're going to have people who will be outspoken, uh, who will try to dominate discussion, and there will be those who sit quietly by and have to be encouraged to to take part in uh, board debate. And the chair has to be conscious all the time of uh, uh, who is making a contribution and to draw everybody into the 
of the discussion. Running tight meetings. I think there's nothing worse than having meetings that drag on endlessly because of poor procedures. And I've certainly left boards in the past where I've found that uh, nothing gets done and uh, they just ramble on. So one of the key roles of the chair is to run tight meetings. I refer to the conductor chair. A chair is a conductor. You've got to bring everybody together and bring the best out of them. It's like conducting an orchestra. Um, And I rarely get involved in the debate. The reason for that is uh, once you get involved in the debate, you can get bogged down and caught up in it all. Your role is to make sure that items uh, that are on the agenda are all discussed fairly and that everyone uh, gets to have a say about what they think. And then you draw those conversations together. So be a conductor chair, not a controller chair, is my message there. The chair sets the meeting agenda. If you're going to run the, uh, the meeting, you should set the agenda. Other people, like the executive officer or others, might prepare it for you, but you should have the final say because it's the meeting that you have to run. Another great skill, and it'll save hours in meetings with a chair that's good at this, is the capacity to summarise, because people will talk ad nauseum sometimes. And the role of the chair is to say, uh, can I just summarise where I think we're at and see if we can agree on something? And if you can do that, you bring a whole lot more structure to the meeting and you save a lot of time. And it can be a brilliant way to actually keep people together. Uh, The board, uh, the chair also represents the board to members, uh, to the media quite often. Uh, Sometimes that's a shared responsibility with the executive officer, but the primary responsibility for uh, to to communicate with members and uh, stakeholders and the media is probably rests with the chair. For that reason, the chair has to be skilled in public relations. They have to be capable uh, of uh, being able to clearly enunciate the views of the organisation and the board to the wider public. Another great skill for the chair, you've got to be a champion listener. Uh, Unless you're listening to people, you're going to miss things. Uh, So you have to sit there patiently, get everybody talking, but listen attentively to what they're all saying. And then finally, you have to be a skillful user of questions. Questions are really important. If the debate goes off track, rather than say, I want you to discuss this, I simply say, can someone take us back to where we were about 10 minutes ago when we were talking about this? And you find that by using questions that way or people make a statement about something, you can ask simple questions like, well, how do you think that would work if we were to adopt it now? And questions like that. So that you could actually tease out more ideas by using questions rather than making statements. So that's really my dozen for the chair. And uh, it's a comprehensive list. It's been compiled over over the years with the experience I've had uh, chairing many organisations, but it is a critical role. And unless you've got a chair doing most of those things, the organisation is probably going to flounder a little bit and you're not going to keep good people unless you're doing most of that. Yeah. Peter, you often talk about um, ensuring that you're getting everybody's contribution at the meeting and that you're conducting the conversation. The chair's allowed to obviously put in their point of view on on a subject, aren't they? Oh, yeah. I think, uh, well, I tend not to. I, I steer it by questions rather than, because if you get involved in the debate, then people start arguing with you, then you suddenly lose that capacity of being a conductor chair. So the way I do it, and I think it works far more effectively, 
I'll ask a question like, has anyone thought of? Right. Okay. Or what would be the effect if we did? So that's a way that you're, you know, showcasing maybe your particular knowledge or experience of a scenario playing out and you're putting it to the Putting it to the, to, to yep. the group. Yep. Um, uh, if you give your opinion first, and I hear a lot of chairs say, well, this is what I think we should do, and then everyone sits there silently uh, and says, well, you know, uh, if I'm going to disagree with the chair, is this going to be a good move? Yeah. There's an old saying, if you want an opinion, give yours last. Yeah. <laughs> but I tend not to do that very much. I, I will tend to steer through questions so that we actually cover the topic properly rather than saying, well, I think we should do this. And then if the... Half the board disagrees with you. You're then got to try and extract yourself yeah. and then get back to being a conductor. Yeah. So I'd be wary of getting too heavily involved in debate. Yeah, and avoiding ad- adversarial situations. Correct, yes, because um, okay. you're, you're there to, to bring the best out of everybody. Yep. To find your local grower group, head to the Grower Group Alliance website, gga.org.au. While you're there, subscribe to the GGA newsletter and be sure to stay up to date with the activities and opportunities from the 60-plus groups around WA that make up the vibrant and diverse Grower Group Alliance network. Okay, Peter, moving on. Um, let's talk about relationships. How do you ensure good chair-to-board relationships, chair-to-CEO relationship, um, the board-to-CEO and um, CEO-to-staff uh, all of the above, all interacting. How okay, do you the, sure navigate those good relationships? Sure, thanks. Uh, there, look, there are probably three parts to this. Let me just deal with them as quickly as I can, but uh, covering the areas that are is essential. First of all, the chair is the leader of leaders, so uh, the chair has to uh, be the one that accepts greater responsibilities uh, on behalf of the board. So for the chair and the board, the first thing I would say is the chair needs to make sure there's a proper flow of information to the board so that they can make the right decisions. Uh, a key role is for the, the, the chair to be keeping the board informed on finances, for example. Uh, we mentioned in the previous question the need for the chair to create an environment for robust discussion uh, so that, that we're getting uh, uh, different opinions and people are able to air their views without... Uh, without any fear or any repercussions for them. There's a need for the chair to create a constructive relationship with management because the chair will see more of the executive officer and and, and staff within the organisation than any other director, so that has to be positive. Another thing that I find, and it can be really annoying to directors, is if uh, a director does express a concern to the chair, the chair should respond quickly, promptly and comprehensively to any concerns rather than just let them drag on. A role that I'm always uh, doing as the chair of a board is to make sure we stay strategic. We don't go down into the operational areas of the organisation. What's the big picture here? Uh, the chair is responsible for managing conflicts of interest and they sure ensures that the board should regularly evaluate its own performance. When it comes to the chair and the CEO... I think the chair and the CEO have a special relationship. They shouldn't necessarily be best friends, but it it is a critical relationship. Uh, I find that quite often, uh, as a chair, I act as a confidant to the CEO. They can talk about their issues and problems and feel safe about it. I provide a guide to the CEO by monitoring their performance and how things are going and and having honest discussion and feedback between uh, uh, the chair and the CEO. There has to be a clear understanding of the roles so that uh, uh, the chair doesn't 
they get into the management areas, but only guides in that direction. Uh, and whilst the CEO will have strategic thoughts to, to make sure that these are, are brought to and discussed by the board. I describe the relationship as being not too close, but close enough. So it's not one that, uh, uh, as I said, you become close friends, but close enough to be able to support one another. And it's got to be built around mutual respect. And sometimes it may be necessary, particularly with new CEOs or executive officers, you need to ensure that their powers are probably restricted by delegation procedures and policies so that they don't get too far ahead of themselves sometimes by giving them too much power too early. I have three guiding principles with all the CEOs that I've involved with. First one is no surprises. Second one, we've got one another's backs. And the third one is we go to support one another and make one another look good. And I think they are probably three uh, guiding principles that I use, and it, it has worked very well for me over time. With the board and uh, management relations, uh, this requires open and honest two-way communications with the EO and the staff. We need accurate board papers with sufficient information from uh, management to, for decision-making. Uh, there needs to be a close alignment of the values the culture and the vision between the uh, uh, the board and management so that we're all on the same page there. Uh, there needs to be a separation between uh, directors and management so because those roles are quite different and critical. I know that becomes hard in small not-for-profits when quite often there are virtually uh, very small staff or no staff and directors quite often have to take on management responsibilities outside of meetings. And once again, there has to be a mutual respect for one another's position. But a breakdown in board management relations is also a recipe for disaster for organisations. And, and it's the chair's role to make sure that those sort of things are fixed. Yes. So really, ultimately, you're trying to avoid you know, divergences between the CEO and, um, and their team and the, the board and, and the management team, but also um, a healthy arm's length. Yes, that's, I think that's important. But there's such, there's such a critical thing. Most organisations I've been asked to go and help uh, have been where there have been breakdowns in these relationships. And sometimes by the time they, they call for help and get somebody in, uh, it's pretty hard to, to change the status quo and normally people have to leave and things like that, so it becomes unpleasant. I love the no surprises. Yes. Um, you know, that situation you know, it's such a great um, sort of policy to operate by because when you sort of bring things up early, you allow people to go away and, um, yes. you know, consider um, the situation and develop their thoughts on it rather than having to respond in a reactive um, situation. Yes. So you're, you're yes. doing the courtesy of, of allowing people the time. Yes, yes. Owned and controlled by around 3,800 WA grain-growing businesses, CBH Group is proud to be actively involved with and supportive of the communities we operate in. We do this through our Community Investment Fund, and a large part of this fund is committed to building leadership capacity in our regional communities. We support and deliver programs that build strength, resilience, knowledge and skills for future industry leaders to work towards a sustainable and profitable grain growing industry. For more info, head to cbh.com.au forward slash scholarships. 
So let's look at workplace engagement. Why is workplace engagement important? Well, I'm a bit of an engagement fanatic, I suppose. Uh, in, in the companies that I chair, both for-profit and not-for-profit, I really like to have uh, regular uh, en- engagement surveys carried out. Um, and it becomes a key performance indicator for the CEO and senior staff to ensure that we, uh, that we have people who are engaged in the organisation. And in for-profit areas, it, it's absolutely essential because it leads to higher profits and so on. So engaged employees will give you a higher level and quality of service. Um, uh, they, the engaged employees will ensure there's greater productivity uh, there's in, uh, certainly uh, engaged employees will ensure there's greater safety because they're following procedures and want to do that. Uh, you'll get better employee health uh, because you'll find that if they're engaged at work uh, and there's less stress, uh, they'll have better relationships outside work as well. You'll get uh, uh, lower absenteeism and you'll get greater employee loyalty. There are three types of people engagement in an organisation I've discovered over time. And the first one are people who I call engaged. That's people who are committed, who are there to make a worthwhile contribution. Uh, They drive creativity. They can't wait to get to work. They've got a positive attitude. They've got an open mind and they want to get things done and they work well in their teams. Then there's the disengaged. The disengaged are the ones who they turn up, they do as little as possible they check in for eight hours. We're really supporting their alternate lifestyle outside of work. Um, they can be a drain on productivity. Uh, they're not really challenged or inspired. They're the, the people that sort of you, you get run over in the rush at five o'clock when, the, when people are going home. That, that, they're there just because it's a job. And, uh, and they say things like, well, it's just a job, isn't it? And then there's the actively disengaged. This is the cancers uh, in the organisation. Uh, they tend to act out their unhappiness. They could be toxic. They undermine engaged employees. Nothing's ever good enough. That the sense of entitlement that they have. They have regular sick days. They roadblocks on any new program that you're trying to bring to bear. They hate the place and will tell anybody who comes near them. And so they're the three: engaged, disengaged, and actively disengaged. Well, the interesting part then, what what do you think might be the the rate of workplace engagement in Australia, a survey done by Gallup uh, in, in the state of the global workplace, 24%, in other words, one in four people are those strongly and committed engaged people. Uh, 60% are disengaged, in other words, they're just doing it because it's a job. And then 16% actually can't bear to be in the place. So that can be a real problem. Wow. Uh, if you, That's the average so if you work away on improving engagement through engagement surveys, and that's why I'm really uh, quite strong on it, it, uh, uh, it, it you're, you're going to get all those benefits I talked about earlier, increased productivity, you're going to make more money, you're going to have less safety problems and all those other things that I talked about, uh, less sick days and so on. So getting engagement surveys, finding out what people are finding wrong with the place or they're unhappy about and fixing those and lifting those engagement rates, you can put money on the bottom line straight away without spending a cent on a new vehicle, a new computer or anything else. It's a, it's a, it's a walk-up start for people who want to improve the quality of the work being done in an organisation. That's why I'm an engagement, uh, an engagement sort of champion, I suppose. For sure. And, I mean, who wants to be part of a team where everyone's 
busting yes. to get out of the door at the end of the day. So, yes. you know, um, that, that those statistics are pretty shocking. One in four yes. being in that category of highly engaged is pretty pretty low. Well, it's interesting. In China, the 26% engaged, so not much more than Australia, 6% disengaged, but 68% actively disengaged. Terrible. And the reason for that is a lot of people working in factories and other places in China, yeah. they don't want to be there. Yeah. But they're, they're told that's where, where to go. Um, strangely enough, one of the uh, the best places with the highest percentage is the USA, which has 30% engaged, 52% disengaged and 18% actively disengaged. So they have a, they're about 6% higher than Australia in terms of people love to get to work. Uh, Americans wow. are very... They're very patriotic and they, yep. they take their job seriously, so that's probably why it's higher. New Zealand's about the same as Australia. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, only, that means if you're an average workplace, one in four of your people are, yeah. are really totally engaged. Yeah, that's staggering. All right, let's look at um, board committees or subcommittees. When are they needed and how do they report back to a board? Uh, well, the boards need to delegate uh, it, depending on the, the size of the organisation and the sort of work that you're doing, I suppose, uh, boards uh, need to delegate uh, so, some of the more complex things that they're dealing with to committees. To give you an example, one board that I was chairing, we were looking at NDIS, the disability scheme, and it was way beyond our capacity in one board meeting to look at all of the the implications of us taking on NDIS. So we set up an expert panel uh, with one or two directors on there, and, and they are able to cut through a lot of the important things that we had to consider and bring decisions to the board table for us to, to look at. So the involvement of committees allows direct directors to deepen their knowledge of the organisation, so if they're on the committee, and they could become more actively engaged and fully utilise their experience. The additional of uh, uh, existence of committees can also indicate to members that the board is taking all of these issues very seriously. Uh, it's areas that you could have committees and are not-for-profit are things like audit and risk, fundraising, membership, uh, those sort of areas, and they'll benefit from uh, from a formal committee structure because the boards are quite often small and operations can be quite complex, some of the things you're dealing with. So I think it's really important to, to look at forming these committees. The other thing about, uh, about committees too is, is the way in which they report to the board. I think there's a danger that committees over-report to boards. So I have two simple rules for committees. You need to bring back to the board what decisions you want the board to make and what information is critical for the board to know. We don't need to know... Uh, everything that you discussed at the committee meeting. What are the decisions you want us to make today and what are the critical things we need to know? And that could be summarised quite often in a page and a half. Um, it's a bit more complicated with the finance, audit and risk committees because they have a, a bit more to say, but you've got to be careful that committees, when they report to the board, don't take over the whole board meeting. So why do you need board committees? Well, first of all, you've got to, there's, a, there's four questions that need to be asked. Is the committee necessary and is its purpose understood? Why do we need this? Uh, why do we need a membership committee or a fundraising committee? And what's its purpose going to be? 
Will it save the board time and add to the quality of board discussion when they bring their findings back? Does it have a clear charter or a terms of reference? Never let a board committee go unless you've given them their terms of reference or a charter because they'll do what they think they need to do rather than what the board wants them to do. They will exceed their charter almost every time. And then the last one is who should be on it? What's its composition? Who on the board has the skills to be on this uh, this committee or subcommittee? Sometimes we refer to them as subcommittees. Um, and do we need to bring in outside expertise? And that is a very uh, good way of bringing in a much richer experience into the organisation to have people who are absolute experts in this area and you can bring them in without them being committed to being board members, uh, to being uh, on a board subcommittee that's providing good, sound and relevant advice to the board when it meets. Um, So that's pretty well, I think, all I could say about board committees, but they are important and they do give the board um, the opportunity to be able to operate at a, at a much higher level with, with a much better quality of information before them. Excellent. And I, I um, once heard of a great idea for smaller towns where they don't necessarily have the diversity of that, those skill sets in the town or at the, at the disposal of the committee and it was a great suggestion um, to perhaps find somebody even from outside of your region um, that you could integrate into a subcommittee um, or even um, on a board committee at the appropriate in the appropriate structure, um, where you don't have access to that to that um, knowledge or skill set in your own town. Is your event visible? Attract traffic to your agricultural industry event by featuring it in the GGA statewide events calendar. Circulated fortnightly, the Grower Group Alliance calendar is the most comprehensive calendar for the Western Australian agricultural industry. Featuring your event is free. Head to the Grower Group Alliance webpage to subscribe, gga.org.au. Okay, Peter, moving on, um, I love this one. Why is it important for boards to evaluate their performance? Well, there's an old saying, what gets measured gets improved. And uh, I think, uh, sadly, very few boards do uh, regular evaluations of their performance. Uh, It's now becoming a requirement. Um, uh, People operating in the financial institutions, in uh, financial planners, uh, under the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority, which is their regulator, they are now required to do an annual board uh, appraisal. In the UK, it's now a requirement for public companies and in some not-for-profits you may find if you're going to get a government grant, they will ask the question of when did you do your last board evaluation and you may have to... Uh, for the term of a grant, do a board evaluation. Um, so uh, it's certainly moving very much in that direction and I think the Royal Commission into banking and all the rest of it is going to put a greater focus on that. It's not the most difficult task. People seem to fear it as if it's some sort of evaluation of their performance and it can be to a certain extent. But we have to be robust enough to uh, to know that we need to look at the performance at organisational level, at the director level um, and at the board level to make sure that we've, uh, uh, you know, we've got a commitment to improvement of the roles, responsibilities, the teamwork, uh, better accountability, better decision-making. All these things can come from a board evaluation. Um, I'm quite often asked to go in as an independent 
uh, arbitrator, if you like, and I, I've, I've designed board evaluation forms and people, directors fill these in. Uh, I quite often will have an interview with the directors and then I'll go back to the board and present my findings of what... Uh, and the areas that I sort of I, I cover off on are the leadership of the organisation, um, you know, is the board setting the performance tone, culture of the organisation... Um, is the CEO or, or EO a role model uh, with the senior management team? Culture, what are the behaviours that are, that are going on in the organisation? Um, the role clarity, is it clear that what the role of the CEO, the board is and management is and there's no, there's no confusion there? Teamwork, um, how does the board and the EO and the management, uh, are they working together well as a team? Is there trust between the board members? Is there trust between the board and uh, uh, the CEO and management? And accountability. Uh, how accountable are we to our members, to stakeholders? Um, uh, are we accountable to the proper corporate governance standards? Do we, are we clar- is there clarity around uh, how will we delegate to the CEO and to committees and so on? They're the sort of areas that I tend to cover off on. Um, and uh, normally as a result of that, and I've actually had a couple of not-for-profits in particular have come back to me, where they've had all enormous problems between management and staff and CEO or EO, where they've had enormous problems within the board. When all of this stuff gets laid out, quite often people decide, well, maybe I'm not part of this anymore. And quite often the people who are causing the problems will tend to make a move. It's quite amazing how often that happens. And I've had emails and letters sent to me 12, 18 months later by saying, thank goodness we did that because we've now, we've had a change of CEO. Some of the board members who are causing difficulties have left. We've got a new board and we're all invigorated. We're moving again. So I, I get them from time to time and I get quite thrilled by seeing that, that something as basic as a board evaluation has brought about that change. So how do you go about it? There are, Look, there's lots of books on it. The Institute of Company Directors has a, a book on board evaluations. There's stacks of stuff on the web as to questionnaires and things you can use. Just make sure you design the process so they can cope with the you know, difficult situations that you are dealing with at a board level. Keep it simple. Sure that the problems are on the table and addressed. The elephant in the room's got to be, got to be dealt with. Um, don't do them more frequently than they can add value. 12 months, 18 months, is that sort of range. Um, uh, start with a collective view, get all the information from people and then get the individual feedback. That's why I like to talk to directors before I produce a report. Involve the, uh, the uh, senior execs, relevant staff and even stakeholders if you think their views as to how the board is functioning are important, so get them involved. And if you've got individual responses, try to keep them uh, confidential as best you can because people will be reluctant to make comments if they're going to be. And I think that the big hint for me is the chair needs to own the process and be the champion for pushing it. Uh, Otherwise, left to their own devices, directors won't won't pursue evaluations. But they are critical to success and they're critical to improvement. And I think it's quite hypocritical for boards to evaluate the CEO or EO every year and not evaluate their own performance. So I think they need to look at themselves if they're doing that. And so really they just help to keep things fresh and on track. Um, and for a small community group where 
they wouldn't outsource it. You could perhaps create that pr- privacy using a tool like yes. something like SurveyMonkey where people yes. just follow it's a link and yeah. answer the questions and have some opportunity yes. for free writing, but they don't need to write down their name. So no. even if it is the chair that's leading the process Correct. and they want to say something, um, you know, it can't be traced back to no, them. No, SurveyMonkey is a, is, is a fine way of yeah, doing it. There free. are other, other tools free, out there. Free it's free options as well. Uh, so, yeah. It's the design of the questions that's critical. So make sure that you, uh, you ask the right questions. I always get them to grade out of four so that they're either very happy or very satisfactory, satisfactory, unsatisfactory or very unsatisfactory. If you leave one in the middle, it's neutral. A lot of people will go to the neutral one. So yeah. mark out of four is a, is a good way of doing it. Uh, but get the questions right and then have a process and then have a process of then feeding that back and making sure and then implement the changes that have come from. It may sound very odd, but people go to all the trouble of doing a board evaluation but never implement what yeah. comes out of it. Yeah. Um, so th- they're my sort of tips on that. Excellent, excellent tip. All right, well, let's um, look at some questions now that have come in from the network. How do small communities ensure succession in a volunteer-based system that is already overloaded or burnt out? Such a great question. There's no easy answer to this one, actually. It's the question I most uh, commonly get asked when I go out to the regions uh, when we're doing uh, governance training for a day or a couple of days. I think the first thing that I would say is make sure your organisations are relevant and performing well, that you are making a difference so that you will actually attract people to the organisation. If you're just going through the motions and you've got boring meetings and all the rest of it uh, and you're not really adding value and making a difference, it's going to be hard to attract good people. For sure. So I think if it's an exciting place to be and it's obvious that you're leading the community in, in the way that you should be, then you're going to attract uh, good external candidates and you're likely to see internal candidates prepared to step up into the chair or some other uh, official role within the organisation. The other thing I think you need to do in small communities, there's no easy way of doing it, but I even do it even here in the in the city, you know, you go and tap people on the shoulder. There is somebody who would be an excellent member of our organisation and, and come on at the board. So you actually, first of all, identify the skills that you need, maybe with the skills audit, and then say, well, who is the best person that we could get in terms of providing good financial advice to us? Who would be potentially a good treasurer or whatever? And then you go out and you find somebody who's capable of doing that. They might not be a practising accountant now, but they may be somebody who's led organisations in the past where they've had to be responsible for finances. But go and find good people and tap them on the shoulder. And uh, uh, the other thing you've got to make sure too that you're uh, you're looking for diversity. Um, you should be looking for younger people these days. There's too many boards and committees uh, in the not-for-profit space are populated by people who have retired and got more time, but you, you're losing the voice of younger people. And uh, the other thing you've got to make clear, and I do as a chair, is the quality of the board is an all-director responsibility. It's not the chair or the CEO. In fact, the CEO shouldn't be involved. They can't be selecting their boss, so as to speak. But it's uh, all directors have a responsibility to make sure that we've got the best people around the table. So they should all be looking for people 
But then make sure you, you go through some sort of selection process. Don't just say, well, I think so-and-so is a good person and you just bring them straight in there. There should be an interview process uh, in some of the small for not, not-for-profits. Every director interviews or has a discussion with the candidate so that the candidate is actually happy and the directors are happy that this person will be a good fit to the organisation. Some great tips there. I remember um, Googling once. I do a bit with our local regional football club and I was Googling, you know, how do you get more volunteers involved? And the tap on the shoulder thing that you've said um, in this article I was reading, it said that so many people just don't step forward because they were never asked. Never asked that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's and, pretty common. <laughs> and a lot of people are really just waiting for that permission Come on in. We want your um, input. We want your, you know, contribution. So, um, yeah. Well, some don't people actually. To, flat- uh, some people are flattered totally. to be asked, you know, yeah. and they say, "Oh, why me? And why?" Um, and when you explain what you're trying to achieve, and particularly that first part, if the board's really doing stuff and people are saying, "Wow, this is really important," and the community's benefiting, you've got a much better chance of them saying yes than uh, than if you're just a a board that's sort of. I call them a sandwich munchers. You know, they just eat sandwiches and go again. And uh, uh, you want boards that are really active and yeah. and doing stuff. And you'll get good people if you if you go looking. Yeah, and just also in regards to the youth, um, obviously people are at different stages of their life, and they have different family loads or study loads or whatever. So what I've found helpful in our context in our local football club is to, to perhaps split those roles that are sometimes handled by one person, mm. um, so like a team manager or something that could be overwhelming for one person and they just can't take it on, split it into two and job share. Find yes. two people that you can induct together and that will work well together and sharing the load so that people are able to make that contribution, you're getting that diversity and succession, but it's not overwhelming commitment for the people that you've asked to come into the mix. Yeah, that's that's very, and, and it's critical in the uh, in the regions because if you've got people from the farming community, they've got commitment to harvesting, yeah, seeding, seasonal, and all those sorts of things. Yeah, so seasonal demands. they won't be able to help during certain times when they're just flat out. So having somebody to be able to to, to backfill with yep. is really important. Well, that brings us to the end of episode four today. Thank you so much again, Peter, for all your insights um, around today's specific topics. My pleasure. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed the content in this episode of the Let's Talk Governance podcast. Resources around governance for grower groups, including where to connect with guest expert Peter Fitzpatrick, can be found on the Grower Group Alliance website at gga.org.au. Before we go, one final acknowledgement to our podcast sponsor, the CBH Group, who have been right behind this new way of making governance guidance really accessible to the Grower Group Alliance Network and any other not-for-profit stakeholder groups tuning in.